tuned for the Alagos Radio, the weekly radio program featuring the best in Greek music and culture, plus interviews with Greek and international newsmakers. The Alagos Radio with Michael Nevaradakis begins now. Welcome to another week of the Alagos Radio, the radio program that bridges the global Greek community and which is heard on over 20 radio stations worldwide. My name is Dr. Michael Nevradakis, and today's broadcast is, in fact, the first broadcast, not just of the new year, but also of the new decade. And joining us once again is our regular guest and contributor, author and ex-university lecturer Evans Agelisopoulos joining us from London. And Evans, before we delve into what we have to talk about today, uh, Happy New Year to you, first of all. Yeah, Happy New Year to yourself and all your listeners. Uh, hopefully, this is going to be an interesting decade. Thank you, Evans, and a Happy New Year to all of our listeners from myself as well. Uh, hopefully, this will be a great year for all of you, and an, as Evan said, an interesting decade for all of us. Uh, and we do have a lot to get into today. There's just so much going on. Uh, but being that we are recording this program on the 31st of January, I thought that we could get started by talking about Brexit, as it is, in fact, Brexit Day today for the United Kingdom. So, Evans, let me start by um, just asking you, because you're in London, what's the mood in the UK right now? I sense a lot of relief from all of those who, for the past three and a half years, were trying to get Brexit done. Well, there's, there seems to be a lot of uh, celebrations being announced uh, in social media, and there's going to be a big party in central London, in Trafalgar Square. Establishment, as always, has issues with, uh, I don't know, Big Ben apparently can't ring, fireworks uh, aren't allowed, and the police are going to be wandering around if you're having uh, one too many drinks. Uh, it's 47 years since uh, the UK was forcibly joined at the hip with the EU. Uh, there was no vote to join. No one was asked. A couple of years later, they had a mini referendum uh, where a majority of people said, OK, we'll stay in the common market. And then we noticed that as each decade went by, we're now in the fifth decade of EU membership, uh, the whole project changed from a trading bloc to basically a United States of Europe. And I think the original plan was to create a mini USA. And as I've said before, the problem is that Europe has, you know, around 30, 40 odd nations with a separate history, with a separate culture. And they have been in conflict, you know, quite a lot over the last one or two thousand years. So it was a project that was basically too difficult to implement from the moment they started to expand like crazy. And uh, what is quite ironic in the whole process is that Farage uh, basically said goodbye to the EU uh, on Wednesday. He waved uh, the UK flag and the president, the deputy commissioner of the European Parliament, told him, 
You know, you're not allowed to wave national flags and shut the microphones, which is an absolute joke because, uh, you know, Britain is a big nation of 70 odd million people. It's had a history within Europe, uh, and he waved the flag leaving and, uh, they pressed the buzzers to say like, we're not going to listen to you anymore. I mean, that had an effect, I think, on a lot of people. And the other problem is the silence uh, on behalf of the Greek media. Uh, they're not really talking about Brexit anymore. Uh, they told us three, four years ago, if the Greeks had left, you know, the apocalypse would occur. And if Britain leaves, you know, everyone's going to drop dead as well. And now we're leaving and... There doesn't seem to be, you know, the apocalypse stories have ended. So I presume they've created the Chinese apocalypse to cover the news, uh, just to quieten down uh, the Brexit issue. Well, <laughs> if one follows the Greek media, there's a lot of apocalypses. There's the Chinese apocalypse, there's the Turkish apocalypse, uh, there's the Trump apocalypse, World War Three is coming... Turkey is going to invade any second. The coronavirus is going to kill anyone, everyone any second. I mean, anything but Brexit. You're, you're absolutely right in your observation that Brexit has been silent from the Greek media, not just now, but for quite a while, I have to say. And um, it's just that they want, it, it seems to me that they want to pretend that it's not happening, um, lest they give people in Greece... Uh, which is supposedly recovering, but if you're on the ground and actually seeing reality, it's not the case, lest they give the Greek people any ideas as to an alternative path forward for any nation-state. In fact, they don't even talk about nation-states. Uh, it's Europe or bust, <laughs> if you if you read the Greek media. Yeah, and, and, and the funny thing is uh, Merkel secretly announced last week uh, we have to open negotiations again with Albania and Skopje and get them to join the EU uh, after Holland and France were vehemently opposed. And she specifically said in a sentence, uh, they will basically supplement the UK. I mean, you couldn't get a bigger joke. Uh, Albania and Skopje, where the only production is like drugs, is going to supplement uh, the British economy and the contribution it made to the EU and the production it's had and plus all the other history of diplomacy uh, running an empire. Albania and Skopje are going to be, you know, the, the replacement of the UK. I mean, you couldn't even make that up. Well, you know, I think it's a sign of desperation, first of all, uh, and coming from Merkel's mouth, it carries some weight because we all know that Germany pretty much rules the European Union. Um, and I think it's a sign that expansion is over. I mean, where else is the European Union going to expand to? We sometimes hear that Serbia is a candidate and is in line to join, but, you know, things in Serbia seem kind of uh, wishy-washy as far as whether they ever will join the EU or not. Um, I don't see Turkey joining anytime soon, if ever. Uh, the, only, the only other thing that I've seen on this topic of expansion, and it's another joke, is... Bulgaria supposedly uh, announcing that they are 
getting themselves in line to join the euro in the next three or four years which you know if you look at bulgaria country right now with an average salary i believe of maybe about 150 euros a month uh in their own currency of course um you know how a, an economy like that can join a eurozone and how someone with a straight face can then turn around and say that the euro is some sort of powerful economy when you have economies within the eurozone with those sorts of salaries i mean it's just mind-boggling yeah what they probably mean is because half the half the bulgarians have left the country they've de facto joined the euro because they're probably working in a eurozone country but anyway uh, apart from the jokes uh looking forward there's a few issues uh now that are going to be coming up for boris johnson's government for a start uh he his mandate expires basically today because he ran the election on getting brexit done and from the moment uh the british mp's leave uh tonight at 11 pm and they are no longer official members of the eu the real issues are going to come back and there are three or four areas obviously of uh, negotiations still ahead and that will be the crux of brexit primarily because this is the first phase where they just leave the second phase is what type of new relationship they create with the EU and whether the EU agrees to the conditions that Britain will be forced to move into and what are those areas is obviously whether Britain is able to accept its fishing waters back which is you know one of the areas which is currently under dispute for instance between uh Greece and Turkey and Turkey is trying to move in to Greek territorial waters and basically de facto join uh, EU territory uh with Britain it has a very large uh shelf uh sea shelf uh which you know goes quite high up from the north sea and for years uh the shipping fleets which have obviously become multinational in our time uh were just fishing because it was under so-called EU waters now if if borders reemerge it would then imply that they have to apply for licenses to be able to fish in that territory the same rules will probably start to emerge in relation to freedom of movement uh, various uh debates have appeared in the media where Johnson wants to basically open up the UK labor market to the planet and lower the threshold of those being able to get a work visa here from 30,000 pounds per annum to about 26,000 that that's going to be an issue again of contention because if 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 Johnson is seen to be uh letting people in who are non-EU citizens at a bigger rate than what happened previously with EU citizens he's going to lose uh, a lot of support and there is a third issue which is the conflict between the British uh, government its introduction of these 5G networks and the role of the Chinese uh, semi-state owned company Huawei and the Americans being dead against it they seem to have arrived at some type of compromise this week so the americans are half uh, being forced to agree with johnson because they don't want to break 
uh, any relationships as yet because obviously of the US elections. And the fourth area is this uh, train, which is called HS2, High Speed uh, Link 2, which was inaugurated in the globalist era, where basically they wanted to double the UK's population of 70 to about 150 million, and they want to create more than one high-speed train that connects London with the north of England. So they can basically double capacity. Uh, now, most people are assuming uh, the introductions of these trains serve some type of purpose of bringing the cities together. I mean, I, I don't think it's anything of the sort. I think uh, the globalists within the UK have studied Japan. They've realised that Japan is of a similar size with the UK and it has 150 million people living on it. And Britain has approximately half that. So how can they double the population uh, by introducing high-speed rail everywhere? And if one walks around London, one notices wherever there are underground uh, stations or, or metro stations, as the Greeks know them, uh, they have sold off the land above and they're building mini skyscrapers. So everything within the economy is, uh, you know, just building flats, building, 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 and finance. And that is where the issue is going to be, whether we try to go for a different type of economy, uh, as one of the main slogans of Brexit was to take back control. Now, who is going to take back control? And for whom is the economy going to work? Is it just going to continue as it did before? mass immigration in, flat building, and the financing of this process? Or is it going to be a different type of economy? Those are very good points, Evans. And I think this last point that you made about development and just this massive growth of flats and supposedly luxury high-rises, we're seeing that in a lot of places around the world. And um, there was an article that I came across recently about New York City, where I grew up. And how you might stand in Central Park at night. And Central Park is now surrounded, especially around its south end, by these this huge luxury high-rises. And you see no lights on. All those apartments have supposedly been sold, but no one's living there. And what seems to be going on is, going back to your comment about how all of this began during the globalist era... Money is being shifted around. These apartments are being constructed and bought and sold. They're being flipped. Uh, that's the terminology that is often used. And they're pretty much just treated as another investment instrument. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any intention for anyone to actually live there. Or maybe an oligarch or show up, stay there about five days a year, go shopping, and then you know take off again. Um, so it seems that London has been um, has been experiencing for a while now a similar trend. It'll be interesting to, to see if that trend will continue once Brexit is official. And I wanted to bring up here also the city of London and how they seem to be viewing uh, Brexit. Basically, because, because the city of London is uh, the main financial centre for the whole of the EU and is also the sort of stopgap between America's trade with the EU and probably the rest of the world. 
it's basically too big, A, to fail, and it's too large to be bothered. So the EU doesn't really have much power in relation to the City of London. And let's not forget that Britain never joined the European currency. And a lot of the European companies uh, who need loans or are processing, you know, the shipment of goods and they need uh, banks to guarantee uh, the movement or the purchase of goods. Most of them come through London. Obviously, it's the language, it's the history of commercial trade, and it's basically too big now. So there's no way that Bond or Paris is going to replace uh, the city of London in terms of its role within you know, the global capitalist system. Uh, the language isn't technically there, and the court systems, say in Germany or France, aren't adapting uh, to the way uh, corporations have developed. Uh, the main problem that's going to occur for the city of London is that as controls are being forced back into the economy in terms of the freedom of movement of labour, uh, we're going to be forced into a path of the freedom of movement of capital because uh, side by side with the shipment of goods and the role of the City of London there, it's also been pivotal in you know money laundering and any amount of money from a non-EU member state can arrive in London and then be washed. So basically, if you have two or three million dollars anywhere or pounds, you can bring it into London They'll open up a bank account for you and you can do whatever business you want, no questions asked. And at the same time, you can probably get loans on that amount. So it's basically one giant, you know, printing press. And because the currency is independent from EU controls, the sky's the limit. But I don't know whether that is to the benefit of the British people. Uh, that is the big issue because the price rises that have hit London, have meant that a whole generation has been priced out of being able to buy a flat and just live. Right, and I think that was also reflected in the map of the Brexit referendum results and in the results of the most recent uh, parliamentary elections, which were essentially a second Brexit uh, referendum, where we saw a sea of pro-Brexit support throughout most of England, uh, even in much of the North, which used to be a labor stronghold. And then you look at London in particular, and you see this island of Remain. Now, I have an article open in front of me. It was published actually just uh, a couple of weeks ago by Sputnik, uh, with an interesting headline, and I think it relates exactly to what you just said, Evans. World economy would collapse if City of London stopped laundering money, says HSBC whistleblower. Uh, this whistleblower by the name of Nicholas Wilson, he was fired by a law firm in the UK after exposing millions of pounds in unfair customer charges, and he claimed the City of London relies on dirty money and the world economy would collapse if the laundering of that dirty money would uh, would stop. So, interesting uh, article that came out just the uh, 16th of January, just a couple of weeks before the official 
let's uh, the official Brexit date. Well, HSBC, I think, is the old Hong Kong bank, which is famous for, you know, it, it got into money from drug dealing and the opium wars. So they obviously know something. Uh, the, the other funny thing is that, uh, was it last week, I went into, you know, a local branch just to pay in something for my wife. And uh, the bank teller said, oh, you can't pay anything in for anyone else because that, that, that could, you know, make it open to fraud. I said to her, I'm not taking money out. I just want to pay in a check. It's, you know, it's that simple. Oh, but there are all these fraud allegations. You know, I quietly reminded her uh, that if I was a non-EU citizen and I walked in with $2 million, I'd have the red carpet treatment. The champagne would be popping. And you'd open up a bank account, no questions asked. So, you know, I don't like receiving lectures on fraud from domestic banks when in reality, <laughs> that's the business they're in. Now, one thing that um, I think listeners would appreciate as far as the clarification is, you know, since up until recently, we were hearing about, you know, a no deal Brexit versus some kind of a deal. And now earlier today, you told us that this is essentially phase one of Brexit that's ending and now phase two is beginning. It seems to me that it's an agreement to leave while negotiating an agreement. Uh, would you say that is an accurate assessment? Yeah, basically, uh, a divorce has occurred. And now the lawyers are trying to work out the settlement. Uh, the settlement of the divorce. In other words, what Britain will owe and what the terms of trade will be. But it's given Britain the free hand to be able to negotiate directly with non-EU countries now. So they're starting negotiations, I think, with Japan, uh, with the USA, with Canada, and obviously Australia. And at the same time, there's going to be parallel negotiations with the EU, uh, Johnson has made a commitment that the transitional period will last at the end of this year by December the 31st. And I think he's passing it into law. So he's going to be committed to leave because that forces an end date onto the EU and it makes them negotiate, not negotiate, if you can understand what I'm saying. Right, and it actually sounds that, in theory, there could be a delayed no-deal Brexit if nothing happens by December 31st and there's no change to that date. I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, there'll, there'll always be some form of deal because uh, if European lorries are to arrive in England, there's got to be some type of negotiation. When they're using this phrase, no-deal, it mostly originated from the Remainers and they used to come up with the phrase, you know, we're going to fall off a cliff. So, so basically, if someone leaves the EU, you know, there's a big hole in front of him and he just falls in it. And that's the end of him, you know, which is absolutely ridiculous. There will always be some form of negotiation because even a European lorry driver driving his lorry on British roads implies that there's some form of insurance, you know, for one. Like, who made this agreement? You know, the insurance companies between two different states. So obviously, the dispute areas are basically about tariffs. They're not about much else. So in other words, will the EU impose tariffs on, you know, British exports? And if they do, will Britain reciprocate? 
and will there be, you know, enhanced customs checks, which may slow down the movement of goods? These are the only areas of real dispute. You know, I, I can't see any others. Now, recently, there's been uh, a couple of statements that I think might be pointing toward further developments that we might see in the future. I believe it was Trump who said something in one of his recent uh, rallies uh, to the effect of uh, the era of globalism is over or I won't allow globalism to prevail. I I don't have the statement in front of me right now, but it was something along those lines. And then uh, a day or two ago, we had Nigel Farage give an interview where he said that populism, uh, and by populism he is referring to the types of movements that helped bring Brexit about and that helped bring leaders like Trump uh, into office. He said that populism is just beginning. So the thing that I think a lot of people are going to be curious to see in the next year and then in the coming years, really, is how the departure of Brexit not just will impact the EU as an entity and the European economy as a whole, but individual countries that are having their own difficulties, if you will, and their own differences in many cases with Brussels and with the EU, uh, how all of that is going to shake out. And if what we're seeing now with Brexit is going to end up being uh, just a one-time event, or if we're going to actually see a process get into motion that might actually accelerate and lead to the departure of more countries from the European bloc. Well, I mean, I, I, I can't see how the EU project, uh, if it's not going to be expanding uh, as much as it wanted to and like encompass, you know, sort of real countries like the other ones in Eastern Europe, like the Ukraine or Belarus, because, you know, an expansion which encompasses Albania is a comedy show, you know, that, that can't even be taken seriously. If if that's not happening, then it implies it's going to go inwards. And if the EU is seen as trying to impose any regulations uh, or severe regulations on the UK, and the UK reciprocates with America supporting it, then uh, the rest of the European countries that are under the tutelage of Brussels will see that they can basically say no. And at the same time, we have the same effect in the opposite. In other words, if uh, Britain gets what it wants and nothing major happens, then other EU countries like, say, Italy, uh, when you know, negotiations occur about its budget deficits and whatever, they will say, well, you know, Britain did what it wanted and left. If you push us too far, we'll be off. So I think this is the beginning of the process of the actual physical breakup of the EU. What form it will take, you know, we have to wait and see and see how things pan out. But there is another issue I think we might need to touch on because obviously, you know, it used to be said a week in politics is a long time. Uh, but since we spoke last month, uh, this month uh, has been almost so long that it appears that, you know, a few years have passed. Uh, we need to basically emphasize 
roughly what has happened in the Middle East uh, between America, say, and Iran, and how that might impact the EU project. Because I think uh, there was an interesting New Year statement by the Defence Secretary of the UK, a character named Ben Wallace, who has also been in the army and has finished uh, the military academy, Sandhurst. He was asked uh, what keeps him awake at night, and I'm quoting him word for word, I worry if the United States withdraws from its leadership around the world. That worries me. That would be bad for the world and bad for us if that happened. We plan for the worst and hope for the best. Over the last year, we've had the US pull out from Syria, the statement by Donald Trump on Iraq, where he said NATO should take over and do more in the Middle East. What is has shown is that the assumptions of 2010, that we were always going to be part of a US coalition on everything, is really just not where we are going to be. So this has severe implications in terms where the EU now wants to go, because, you know, they've spoken that they want to create an EU army, you know, they want to militarize, basically bring Germany back into the center and then have 10 or 20,000 troops at the ready to a invade other countries, but also to invade countries within the EU if they step out of line. And this is one of the issues that's going to also come up, you know, what type of future role for the EU militarily, because up until now, it was Britain who was the main organizer for the EU on behalf of the USA. Now the USA seems to be wanting to leave, uh, you know, areas where it was in conflict, playing in Afghanistan. We had the killing of the Suleimani character. We've had the massive protests in Iraq to get American out and Iranians. Where does this leave the EU? I think you raise a lot of very important points there, Evans, and uh, as you were talking, a few things came to mind, including this recent statement just a couple of days ago by Verhofstadt, who was talking about a post-Brexit European Union and how he envisions such a union being one without an opt-in and without an opt-out. And if one thinks about it, that's a very ominous statement, because how is something like that going to be enforced in practice? And I think that's where your statement a moment ago about a possible future role of an EU army comes in. Because if you have states that are reluctant to leave the European Union, but at the same time are reluctant to give up every last semblance of sovereignty that they have and to just become a state like Nebraska or Maine is in the United States, then we might have an issue there. Now, I also would like to bring up here, you know, I mentioned before recent statements by Trump and Farage about globalism and populism. I think Steve Bannon, who has spent a lot of time in the UK and in the rest of Europe has also made similar statements. And we're seeing uh, in Italy, for instance, uh, Salvini continues to make electoral inroads. He may not be winning the regional elections in every region, but there's, you know, there's regions that just historically have not voted uh, for, uh, for the right and for 
the sort of ideology that Salvini is representing or believed to represent, but he's making inroads even in those regions. And then if we look at uh, countries like Hungary and Poland uh, that continue to have disputes with the European Union on all sorts of matters. Many people think it's just about immigration, but it's also, uh, we saw, for instance, Poland passed essentially pedophilia law recently that the European Union uh, very strongly disagrees with, and the European Parliament passed the resolution, which most of the Greek MPs voted for as well, uh, condemning Poland for that law, and they've been talking about Poland's supposed judicial, lack of judicial independence, which is a joke. If you look at other countries, including Greece, what kind of judicial independence exists in Greece, for instance? And, and, and you never hear the European Union talking about that. So there's all these different issues that I think are going to come to the fore, and that's even before we get into what you talked about uh, regarding the Middle East. The German economy is one more. It's stagnated. Uh, you know, people talk about Germany as the European Union's uh, economic powerhouse, as the powerhouse of the Eurozone, and yet they've stagnated, and that's before Brexit has officially occurred. So, you know, any downturn in Germany is going to have, I think, a ripple effect on Italy, which, you know, is having major issues with its uh, economy and its banking system, and then those that ripple effect will then go on to other countries. I've made a prediction years ago. And I may be wrong, um, and you know I'll, I'll be on a hook for it. But uh, people always ask me what I think will happen in Greece eventually, and I think that my answer has always been: it's always going to depend on developments outside of Greece. So if I think, for instance, we see at some point an Italian exit from the EU and the Eurozone, as they are a Eurozone member, I think developments like that are what are going to eventually lead to what we have been calling for the past decade a Grexit. I don't know if you agree, Evans, but I, I, you know, I don't think Greece is going to take any initiative on any of these issues. It's always going to depend on what happens outside of its borders. Yeah, well, obviously, Greece was forced into the EU IMF ECB stranglehold. And apart from the basically peaceful protests that the people were involved in, there was no actual break between the political class and, you know, globalism. And although, you know, the idea of leaving the EU started big time, in Greece at the beginning of the decade, it actually ended up being a big power that left. Uh, now, obviously, we, we don't know what's going to happen next, but from what is happening now, we are noticing uh, that uh, the old politics continue unabated in Greece. In other words, uh, just as the EU is having big jitters with Britain's departure, Greece is becoming more and more EU. In other words, it's more of the ideal of what the future for the EU looks like. And I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. Uh, the Greek military, you know, a lot of reports have appeared, are now involved basically in the shipment of the so-called refugees onto the Greek mainland. And they are feeding them. Uh, they are setting up camps for them. And they are basically running it. Uh, and that would include 
you know, sections of the Greek Navy as well, the whole of the police force and the whole of the medical service. So the whole of the state infrastructure is now openly involved in replacing the domestic population. And as we saw, and that is what was a bit strange, you know, for the first time uh, they publicised within, you know, the British globalist media that there was, you know, a big protest on the Aegean Islands where a lot of people came out against uh, the migration. And yesterday they were circulating, or the day before, these uh, silly uh, sea borders of, you know, floating orange balloons, which apparently are going to block, you know, the movement of people from Turkey into Greece. Everyone was laughing again. What, what, what I'm basically arguing is Greece is so lock, stock and barrel owned by Brussels and Berlin that it continues like nothing's happened. And the funny thing was uh, when uh, Mitsotakis ended up, uh, you know, meeting Trump in America, he went on a conference there and the bloke looked, you know, totally out of place. Uh, even the Greek media were saying he was copying Trump movements. He left one meeting and he went to hold some guard's umbrella on the way out, thinking it's for him. And he forgot his clothes in. Uh, you know, the man looks like a clown, acts like a clown, and talks like a clown. I mean, he's actually <laughs> worse than Tibras, and more Tibras than Tibras, if, if, you know, if you know what I'm saying, because he's actually trying to spread uh, the migrants everywhere in Greece, in, in areas where Syriza wouldn't have even dared. Right, and that's what we've been we have been hearing from this government in the past couple of months about opening these ten centers in ten different regions throughout Greece. We did see those protests that you brought up a moment ago, and that even the globalist media was forced to report upon uh, in several places. We saw them in Lesvos, which is sort of ground zero for this sort of trafficking that has been taking place, but also the other nearby islands, Samos, uh, Hios. Um, and then we also saw a relatively big protest take place in central Athens as well, where the media, instead of playing up the protest that took place, played up this um, attack that was said to have taken place on a photojournalist who I think was there working for Deutsche Welle, so for a German media outlet. Uh, and it's interesting because I think this particular individual has been reportedly attacked before as well. So this was kind of cast in the same light that the media has, for instance, cast Salvini in Italy as this is this 100% pure racism and, you know, that same old rhetoric. And then we're seeing that same rhetoric in practice, as you mentioned, by the government in Greece right now. I mean, I think those sea balloons, that is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen in my life, as if that's going to stop anything. And then we have a new president that is officially taking office in Greece, I believe on March 13th, if I'm not mistaken, a former high court judge. That in itself calls into question a division of powers between the judiciary and the executive branch or the governing branch of the state. But aside from all of that, if you look at this new president, she's open borders are us, is supposedly all for things like the Green New Deal. So it's yet another example of what you said a moment ago, Evans, that 
most of the continent, or at least many countries in the continent, are moving in one direction politically. The, polit- the political winds have been shifting. And Greece is just continuing as if there's been no change in the weather whatsoever. Yeah, and the funny thing is that uh, New Democracy was elected on a platform of basically controlling the borders. And all those Aegean islands uh, elected, most of them, uh, New Democracy MPs and regional governors. And uh, these protests basically highlight the contradiction between what the people want and one of the slogans sort of encapsulates uh, their desires, uh, which was bring back our lives or our old way of life. But at the same time, there was another demand, which is probably coordinated from these same new democracy MPs, that migrants should just be shifted along. And the plan I think that they've come up with is basically to double the capacity of the migrant camps and add as many as they had before, but under so-called closed immigration centres, so they don't bother the people on the islands, because there's been a couple of uh, interesting reports, which are quite funny, that on one of the islands, when uh, the blow-ins are paid, uh, the ATM machines are working 24-7 for about a week just to get the payments through, which implies that the actual infrastructure of these little islands, although they might be big in size, some of them, like Midilini or Lesbos, as it's known, the actual infrastructure for coping with this amount of people just does not exist. So Greeks can't even get money out of the bank for a whole week. One problem. Then there's the other problem. Uh, when they first arrived in 2015, a lot of these NGOs went round and found, you know, probably older people, people that didn't know much, and asked them to provisionally house migrants. And there was a case that appeared in the media where an old bloke gave over his farm when about three or four hundred were there, and he rented a section of the farm buildings as storage for the NGOs. Anyway, after they left, you know, they might have been there a few months, the whole place was wrecked. So the actual physical destruction that is occurring on the islands is phenomenal. You know, there's rubbish piled up everywhere. There's no sewage facilities. Uh, Dirt and disease can come along. And then plus, they got migrants from, you know, wherever. And they're all into, you know, divided up into their own little mini ethnic groups. They go around stabbing each other, raping, mugging. And, you know, a a whole heap of nonsense is developing. And because they're allowed free to roam on the islands, a lot of Greeks are just locked up in their houses. They can't even travel. So this situation is going to explode in one direction or another. Uh, I can't see it continuing indefinitely. And I think the people have forced the government to create these new centres, which allegedly are going to be like, uh, you know, they're going to be locked up. But at the same time, it means doubling the amount of people on the island. And where will it end? Because once you build another bunch of centres, another bunch arrive, and then when you move them forward, another bunch is going to arrive. So, you know, what is the real agenda? Right, and I think that we're, what we're also seeing in a lot of these islands, these are these are very small societies, especially in the winter, their population is very small, their native population. And I think there's a divide 
that is also evident between people who, you know, ordinary people who feel that their lives have been disrupted. And then there's a certain select group of people that operate, aside even just from the NGOs and the people that work for them and get big salaries, but also people that operate certain businesses that are benefiting big time from this inflow of people um, and who would love to see it continue because they're raking in the income. And that is leading to schisms in those societies as well. Now, I also, I think at this point, want to come back to what you were talking about before about this issue, the geopolitical changes more broadly and U.S. withdrawal, because I think that is going to directly uh, have an impact on this inflow of migrants into Greece as well. We've seen what has happened recently. You mentioned it before in uh, Iran. We've seen the U.S. pull out from Syria. Uh, We're seeing what is happening with Libya. Donald Trump had a tweet recently saying that we're down to 5,000, meaning 5,000 troops in Iraq, and said that that number will decline even further. So he all but confirmed that uh, a pullout is taking place in one way, one form or another in Iraq. Uh, And in that whole spat that has gone public with Bolton, he said that if I had listened to Bolton, we'd be up to World War VI by now. So that also seems to be a direct response to all of this constant fear-mongering that we keep hearing every time something happens somewhere, that, oh, World War III is coming. We, it was supposed to happen in Syria. It was supposed to happen with North Korea, with Venezuela. It was supposed to happen now with Iran after that Soleimani fellow was killed. And it hasn't happened. And instead, what we seem to be seeing is an effort, even if there's a lot of resistance to it, probably by many different elements of the military and other elements of the state, to prevent this, what we seem to be seeing is uh, a recognition on the part of the U.S. that it just can't be the global hegemon anymore. So we are seeing this sort of controlled reduction or pullout. And I think that that will have an impact even on a migration issue in Greece, among many other issues. Yeah, well, it definitely will have. And I think the swipe that Trump said uh, that we need to increase NATO's role in Iraq as opposed to the U.S. role is a swipe on the history of it. Because if, if, if you remember correctly, you know, the French refused to send in troops. So uh, they haven't got a problem. The globalists are demanding America sort everyone out and get American uh, soldiers to die on behalf of others. And now when the situation is obviously quite explosive and it is quite ironic that most people can't read what is actually happening because, you know, it's the first time I've ever come across a quizzling government like the one in Iraq voting against the master to leave. Now, under normal circumstances, that would be impossible. They would all be locked up, arrested and thrown in jail. But the resolution occurred It was passed in Parliament, and then you've had these massive demonstrations, and it's also revealed that the US bases uh, have got no air cover. So so basically, anyone from anywhere can lob rockets onto them, and, you know, they have issues of survival. And originally, they said no one was injured, and now they're admitting, you know, quite a few have been injured. 
Uh, we don't know whether any have died. Now, you know, I'm, I'm reading this from multiple levels. On, on the one hand, Trump needs an argument internally to pull the troops out. And he's now been given one on the plate. The Iraqis don't want him. So it's time to go. And if you don't want us to leave, Europeans, why don't you go there? <laughs> They're not going to go, are they? So this is basically, you know, a game that is occurring on quite a lot of levels. Uh, but behind it is that Trump needs to arrive, I think, by November. And to have been seen that he doesn't want wars. So he needs some pullouts. And uh, what happened with Iran may have been half coordinated. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't always believe exactly what happens first time round. I mean, this Soleimani character was working with the American forces since 2014, allegedly chasing ISIS in Iraq. Suddenly overnight, you know, I'd never heard of him. He's like enemy number one. He's a bigger enemy than Bin Laden, bigger enemy than the one after. And, you know, suddenly they got rid of him. And then for about five days, it was World War Three round the clock. And then you had all the pundits appearing on the TV, all the ones in social media, you know, creating paranoia. And, you know, we were going to have a nuclear war. And then it's just died a death. Obviously, the, the bad side of it all was, you know, the Ukrainian airliner uh, that was shot down and if there were passengers on board. You know, that that's quite bad. And I, 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 I again, there, we, we don't know whether that was done deliberately. And it also weakens the various factions within the Iranian state because, I think America wants to have some type of geopolitical settlement across the board in the Middle East. In other words, if they pull out as well from defending Israel, because for the first time we've now heard that they've created a plan to join up the West Bank and Gaza, which has always been the stumbling block, and it isn't via a bridge, it's via an underground tunnel. This plan is the only realistic plan of actually creating a mini solution of two states where America becomes the defender of, say, Israel and the EU adopts Palestine. I think that's where they're headed. But in order to go through the motions, they have to have some type of agreement with Iran for Iran to pull out uh, from various countries where it has influence. And that can only be on condition that America, you know, says to them, obviously, through back channels, look, we don't want to bomb you, we don't want to fight you, we want to pull out, but we have to be seen that we're still number one. You know, we don't want to be seen that, you know, we're leaving with a tail between our legs, if you can understand what I'm saying. Right, absolutely. And I think everything that we're seeing happening in a wider Middle East region is connected. One final issue I'll bring up before we wrap up for today is Libya, where, you know, this whole show got started with Turkey making a deal with the supposed government of Libya uh, for their, you know, respective continental shelves, which includes much of what is actually Greece's continental shelf. We're and we're talking about a government in Libya that doesn't seem to govern much more than the buildings that it's housed in. And what was playing in Greece for a couple of weeks was, once again, that Erdogan is going to, you know, he's made a deal with Libya, and now he's going to come and crush us next. And what we're actually seeing is he can't even send 30 troops 
to Libya to defend an airport. He can't send two ships to Libya. They were, what, they were intercepted, they were bombed. Haftar, the military leader that is against the Tripoli government, seems to be making more and more inroads. Mitsotakis met with him in a meeting that didn't seem to actually produce uh, anything of substance. That meeting took place with the Germans and uh, the French and others, you know, talk, you know, deciding on Libya without Libyans being there. But I think the end result of all of this, what we're seeing is that you know, despite rhetoric to the contrary, it seems that this Haftar character is making continuous gains. We keep hearing from various sources that, you know, this this deal between Turkey and the official government in Libya is just not valid. Even the state oil company in Libya came out and said so. Um, so interesting developments there. And I think they are also related to the, what what's happening in the wider region. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I think the... The pseudo-conflict between Greece and Turkey was obviously manufactured in agreement with Erdogan so they can give credentials to Mitsotakis uh, because primarily he doesn't support Haftar either. He supports the Tripoli government. He's always supported the Tripoli government and uh, a way in which both the Germans and the Turks got Mitsotakis out of the situation is by pretending, you know, they never invited him to, you know, the conference Berlin and in the negotiations with Moscow between the warring parties. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, we also have a history in our role in Yugoslavia. Uh, nominally, we allegedly supported the Serbs, but in practice, uh, we relayed uh, the US positions against the Serbs. So whenever Milosevic came to Greece, we relayed uh, the American position. Uh, when Haftar came to Athens, uh, you know, I, I don't recall a joint press conference being created. Nothing was actually printed of what the discussion was about. And I'm of the opinion Mitsotakis was relaying uh, Germany's and Erdogan's position on Haftar. Don't take over Tripoli and uh, see if you can join uh, a minority government with the Tripoli crowd. And the funny thing in the whole process is, as the negotiations were going on, uh, some guerrilla groups took control of the last uh, oil wells that were financing the government in Tripoli. So, you know, I, I, I don't actually think, you know, A, Haftar is the you know, the total boss. You know, there's there's a lot of groups fighting there, taking control of various situ situations and areas, and Haftar happens to be their representative. So it's, it's a bit difficult for him to actually stop the process that he's normally in charge of. Uh, you know, Libya will go back to the Libyans, and uh, some form of control will come back, and uh, most of the, you know, globalists from the left uh, wing uh, have totally forgotten that Gaddafi, after the Iraq invasion, cut a deal with Tony Blair and the Western multinational oil company and carved up the country. And, and what led to the problems in Benghazi was that the, the Libyans there, you know, were basically locked out of the oil well. 
and you know these foreign multinationals came in, brought in their own employees, Bangladeshis, Chinese, and were just making money hand over fist. And this led to some form of disturbances, which obviously got out of hand. And then we are where we are. And some of these same leftists who were criticising the overthrow of Gaddafi uh, are now supporting Haftar. And the irony of it is Haftar is representing the rebellious areas of Benghazi. So uh, in, in, instead of them admitting that they were talking nonsense in 2011, uh, they are now, you know, agreeing with, with, you know, the movement behind Haftar because obviously they've realized that this may affect, uh, you know, the Greek, uh, relationship with Turkey. And, you know, that, uh, map that the Turks produced was a joke anyway because it actually joined up the Benghazi regions, which are under the control of Haftar with Turkey. You know, on, on, on the map, on the continental, you know, seashell, uh, map, the, the one they produced, uh, Tripoli basically said that the coastal areas around Benghazi will be linked with Turkey and Tripoli doesn't even run Benghazi. You know, they got, they got no writ there. So the whole thing is a total joke. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and as you said before, Evans, a week in politics is an eternity. Uh, we're going to speak again in two weeks. So <laughs> we'll just have to see what we're going to have to talk about two weeks from now when we're on the air again. But we're out of time. So Evans, thanks again for uh, joining us today uh, from London. And we'll have the opportunity to talk again in two weeks in what will be, at least in, in its initial phase, post-Brexit Britain. Yep, and happy Brexit to all your listeners. Absolutely. Happy Brexit. And to all our listeners, thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of uh, The Alagos Radio. I'm Dr. Michael Nevradakis. We'll be back again in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Follow The Alagos Radio on Facebook and Twitter and remain connected to all our latest news and updates. Check us out today at facebook.com slash thealagosmedia and at twitter.com slash thealagosmedia. TheAlagosMedia.org, our website, which brings you the latest news from The Alagos Radio, live streaming of The Alagos Radio 24-7, podcasts, on-demand programming, and much more. Visit us today at TheAlagosMedia.org.